Six nations and six amazing chances to win an unforgettable adventure for you and five mates in a Six Nations European host city of your choice. To take part, enter online now at greenking.co.uk slash rugby. Six nations, six mates and six international rugby getaways worth £3,000. Scrum down and sign up to win at greenking.co.uk slash rugby and watch all the Six Nations action live at your local Green King pub. Terms and conditions apply 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. Hi, it's Alfie here, the presenter of The Ruck. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to tell you about Funding Circle. And to do that, British and Irish Lions, Saracens and England hooker Jamie George is alongside me. How are you, Jamie? All good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to have you with us uh, for The Ruck. Now, Funding Circle backs small and medium UK businesses with simple, competitive business finance. And Jamie is a Funding Circle ambassador because, Jamie, not only are you day-to-day a professional athlete, but you're also a business owner as well. Yeah, yeah. I uh, set up a business with a good school friend of mine about six years ago called Carter & George. Um, we're a physio business that effectively tries to deliver the same level of elite care that I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. So the link between physiotherapy and strength and conditioning and rehabilitation, etc. I've been looking for a physio. so I know a good place. I'll get your card after. Funding Circle has supported over 90,000 British businesses with £12 billion in finance since 2010. So, Jamie, simply, how have Funding Circle helped you? Well, obviously, they've got an amazing um, financial product. So um, our most recent venture is, is trying to grow the business as quickly as we can. We've got five clinics now and we're looking to push on. And obviously, we wouldn't have been able to do that without the help of a funding circle and um, the financial support that they were able to give us. So if you're looking to overcome challenges or push your business forward, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Hi everyone, welcome back. This is The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. As always, thanks for joining us. I'm Alfie Reynolds and we're almost, after a month of action or about a month of action, at the end of the pool stages at the World Cup. Alex Lowe, Mark Palmer and Elgin Alderman joining me for this episode. Gents, we're scattered all across France. Whereabouts are you all? Alex, I'll start with you. I've come back to Le Touquet, England's base here on the Brittany coast, uh, via... Toulouse, where I went to Japan against Samoa, and then Lyon, uh, where I saw the All Blacks absolutely thump uh, the Italians, putting to bed those kind of glimmers of hope of a of an Azuri surprise. Uh, and now I'm back here on the coast for England's build up to their their last pool match against Samoa, which um, is probably be a, a dress rehearsal for for a quarter final against Fiji. Mark Elgin, your travels this last week or so, I feel like particularly with. Wales, Ireland and England all having rest weeks. It's been a week of everyone dashing all over France for various different reasons. Mark, where, where have you been? I have been in Leo for Scotland's big win over Romania, uh, then trips down to uh, St Etienne for Australia, Portugal, and then on to back to Nice, where we've had the best part of a month at the Scotland base camp. They're heading there for three days before heading back north to Paris for uh, the weekend's game against Ireland. So crisscrossing the, the train network this weekend. 
yeah, I think we're all getting pretty used to the train connections across France and the air miles are, are doing their job. Elgin, what about you? I've travelled down from the serenity of Wales's camp in Versailles uh, down to Marseille for South Africa, Pitonga, plenty of green shirts around. I've actually seen a Wales top knocking about as well, so I think they might be lost somehow. But uh, <laughs> no, Wales had four days off at the start of the week. Most of them just hung around in France. A few of them headed back with uh, with young children. Adam Beard welcomed a new child into the world as well. So uh, yeah, it's been uh, all family focus for Wales and now they're, they're back at their work uh, up in Versailles. Well, let's pick up actually with the New Zealand-Italy game, Alex, that, that you mentioned. I was quite interested in some of what Ian Foster had to say after the game because that game came for the All Blacks following the break and he said that it was all a little bit weird. I mentioned that Wales... England, Ireland have had rest weeks over last week. How have you all found it? This is obviously something that we've had to deal with at this World Cup with all the teams throughout the pool stages at some point having a week where they weren't playing. It's, it's an oddly designed tournament because it started with with a, the explosion of that opening weekend with, with so many big games and there's now this lull in the middle. Now we feel it because three of the home nations aren't playing. The way that they're looking at the next World Cup with uh, 24 teams, actually there won't, there won't be a week off. Uh, in the pool stages, I don't, I don't like it. I think they could have think they could have done the fixture list slightly differently to keep the momentum going. It's quite difficult. I mean, I've, from a newspaper perspective, we're quite fortunate that the Ryder Cup's happening. That's so newsworthy that you know, focus is going over there for a bit. But I do sense that it's starting to drag a little bit. And we're you know you get the odd you've got the odd big game coming up Ireland Scotland obviously and and some really interesting narratives along the way Georgia Fiji. Was was a great game with with a you know a really interesting storyline attached to it, but it just it is it is sagging a little bit in the middle, and that is something that that I think should you know, they they do well to to just uh, address for for the next World Cup, and and with the talk of an expanded tournament that they reckon they will do, but there's still plenty to talk about. It's just it was so front loaded with big games, wasn't it? You're right, Alex. And I think, you know, speaking with that, the Scotland hat on, you had the kind of slightly farcical situation that by the time Scotland kicked off their second game against Tonga last week, Ireland and uh, South Africa had already played three so to, to Scotland's one. So having had the, all the build-up to a massive first game against the Springboks, it, it kind of felt that we'd completely vanished from the tournament for a fortnight. Uh, and as you say, that, that, that sort of momentum went out of uh, all the kind of positive vibe back home as well. Um, you know... I compare it to you know a major football tournament where you, you know the, the the group stage is over in what ten days or something. It's uh, game, 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 and I know it's not feasible with the, the the turnarounds that are required in rugby from a physical point of view. But there, there has to be a better way than this massively elongated program, as you say, that just kind of sags in the middle. Yeah, I've been working on a an, a theory which may or may not make it into print because I don't know whether it quite <laughs> adds up. But it's it's dusting off a plan that the RFU proposed way back 2002 when they were bidding to host the 2007 World Cup they proposed a two initially a two-tier World Cup you know the, the top 16 teams and then a secondary tournament but they, they then evolved that thinking into effectively running a plate competition yeah and and I do think that with a 2014 World Cup which is what, what the plan is for next time that would actually mean one fewer matches for one fewer group games so for those uh, teams who don't qualify, they'll go home having played one one game less, and and I, I do think there's scope there to um to to kind of create a sec- you know a plate competition that, that runs midweek through the knockout. So actually, the momentum stays high, and 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 you've seen from the crowds at some of the games here involving the developing nations, they've been awesome, and you know the the, the performances of Uruguay and, and Portugal, and you know Fiji Georgia was was one of the games of 
of the World Cup. Georgia-Portugal was another sensational occasion. What, what a game that was. Just wonder whether there's more that can be done. Obviously, it would cost more to keep all these teams in the country. But you could put World Cup qualification on you know, the winners of the plate competition. I, I think there are ways of engaging these teams, keeping the spectacle going. You can do it, I think. Like I say, I haven't quite worked out every fine detail, but I think you can switch the plate comp to be midweek. Yeah. And so, that, and so therefore, you know, it, it keeps everyone interested. It, keeps, it gives all these teams at least the same number of games they've got now. I think it'd be really interesting to, to see more. I'd love to see more of Portugal in this tournament, more of Uruguay. Alex and I are obviously cut from the same cloth because I spend my spare time figuring out how a 2014 <laughs> World Cup could uh, take place as well. And one, one of the one of the possibilities I've landed upon is that if you've only got four teams in a group, then you can have obviously sort of every every team in those groups playing at the same time or at least on the same weekend, for example. And you could almost organise the draw so that the team that's seeded first in the group plays fourth in the first round, second place, third, and first place, third, second place, fourth. And so you you manipulate what you think will be a pool decider in the third round. So you have first v second. So that way sort of everything is up for grabs, first, second, and possibly third. If they go into a last 16, you'd have this this big weekend where, you know, France would be playing New Zealand, Ireland would be playing South Africa, Wales would be playing Fiji or Australia, whoever's one or two in each pool. And then after that, it's straight into all knockouts. So you'd almost have two weeks of sort of build up and then four or five successive weekends where it's either a knockout game or a, or a pool decider. And similar to the, the possible plate idea, yeah, I, I thought the same thing that later on in the tournament, it could be the, the sort of Monday to Thursday fair in between the, the, the main cup competition. And, and you can even do it at smaller grounds. I know obviously England aren't hosting the World Cup anytime soon, but thinking of the big games would be taking place that like to Twickenham. And then, you know, you could have Portugal versus Romania in the plate at somewhere like Sandy Park or that kind of size. So, you know, you, 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 you take the sport around the country, you get people in down in, I know obviously England aren't hosting it, but hypothetically in, in Exeter, being able to see more of these teams that we like to see in a smaller ground. So there's not as big, a, you know, big, big an onus on selling all those tickets, but you can still get 10, 12,000 in one of these small venues. So, yeah, it's something I've been thinking about as well. Definitely, because I, I, I really think one of the features of this World Cup has been the crowds for... They don't like us calling, but the developing nations uh, against developing nations, tier two v tier two. They've been selling out stadia around the country for those. That's a real sign, I think, that if you if you pitch it right, if you get the right environment, you, you make it attractive to people, you price it right. You know, there's good rugby on show here, and that that's the key thing. That, that some of these games have been have been awesome between the, the tier two nations, and and that's what we need to see more of. Well, I didn't necessarily intend for the opening section for me us, <laughs> us solving the format for the next World Cup, but I'll be honest, Sorry, I'm Elfie. sold. No, no, I quite like it. I'm looking for, I hope that makes it into the paper because I think <laughs> you, you raised some really good points there. There was one other thing actually from the All Blacks Italy uh, post-match press conference of Ian Foster that I did want to touch on, which was about style of game plan. This is what Ian Foster had to say following that heavy, heavy victory for the All Blacks. You look at the, the South African and Ireland game and it was a very different game of rugby you know the ball and play was there for 27 minutes and for in the whole game so very stop start game very physical very combative whereas you saw a different spectacle tonight and probably at some point the world's got to decide which game they'd rather watch so i thought that was quite interesting style of play do you want to see a bruising tense match between two top sides that could go either way in south africa 
and Ireland or the absolute drubbing that New Zealand handed out to to Italy. I think most people listening to this, guys, would would pick the Ireland-South Africa game every single time. Interesting comments from, from Ian Foster. Absolutely. And I, I think you, you've probably nailed it there that the, the already engaged audience would every day that we go for Springboks against Ireland, just the kind of nuance of that and the, the grim pitched battle that it was. And, you know, it could, could easily have gone either way right till the very last. But the key thing we're probably trying to do here, though, is, uh, is get fresh eyeballs on the sport uh, for any number of reasons, not least the commercial imperatives that keep coming back to the fore with, with, uh, with various developments in the news around the clubs going bust. So, um, you know, and if we're trying to sell the game to a wider audience, then, um, you know, you would imagine that, that 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 audience will be more naturally drawn to more eye-catching feel that we saw in the in the New Zealand game, albeit it wasn't competitive in the slightest. So I think you've probably got a kind of dichotomy between um, purist and a new audience in that one. I just thought he picked the wrong game to make that point because no one wants to watch. True. No one wants to watch ninety-six, sixteen, or whatever it was. Like fourteen tries. What people do want to watch is the brilliance of their execution, and that. That was that was from the scrum to their handling to their lines of running to their line out. You know, so many of their of their tries in the first half came from winning a turnover on the floor, kicking it deep into Italian territory, and running a, a perfectly executed line out drill. And you know, they scored three tries in well, four tries in twenty one minutes, and Italy had gone at that point. So no one wants matches that are that one sided. What they do want, I think, is brilliance of execution. And where rugby rugby's great strength is that not every game is the same when there are hundreds of different ways to win a match. And when you go through a tournament, you will remember matches like Ireland-South Africa, but you will also remember, you know, I will remember the way Portugal played against Wales, for example. I remember the way Fiji played against Australia. It's It's all different. And you don't want every game to be a game of basketball where it's free-flowing because that becomes dull. It needs a counterbalance. From my perspective, he picked the wrong game to make the point because no one wants a one-sided result like that. What they do want is brilliance of execution. And that can be the pitch battle of South Africa against Ireland, where the tackling was one of the standout parts of that game. The legality, the legal ferocity in that game was one of the things that thrilled people. Now that's not for everyone. My younger son doesn't want to play rugby. He's a, he's a wing, he's plays football, doesn't like the physicality. My older son has just started playing rugby last year. He's loving the physicality. Everyone's different. But rugby has the opportunity to appeal to everybody with each game being different. And and I I think where we would all agree, where Razi Erasmus, who responded to Ian Foster, would agree with Ian Foster, is that it's just brilliance of execution. However you play the game, if you do it well, then it can be a, a thrilling spectacle, whatever style of match it is. And on the point of the spectacle as well, I think I saw someone else point out that the ball in play time for the New Zealand-Italy game wasn't that much superior to the Ireland-South Africa game anyway. But it's an interesting point. In terms of the rest of the podcast, very shortly, we're going to be chatting to Mark to get the latest from the Scotland camp. Uh, They beat Romania to set up a crunch game against Ireland this coming weekend. We're also going to cast our eyes forward to the final round of matches in the pool stage and how the quarterfinal qualification picture, how all that is shaping up. And we'll break away from the World Cup as well, unfortunately so, because more awful news from the club game in England last week Jersey Reds announcing that they were to cease trading just months after they won the championship. So I'm going to have a chat with Alex about that. He was covering it in the paper last week. But we'll start on a positive. Up next, it's Scotland. 
So Scotland 84-0 against Romania. Darcy Graham, first half hat-trick, four tries overall. Mark, last week you got a WhatsApp from me uh, after, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday after the last week's episode, apologising for, for not including more of Scotland. We had Wales, we had an England chat, we were speaking about Ireland after the game against South Africa, and then I felt a little guilty that Scotland had perhaps been left a bit in the dark. So we're giving them top billing this week after what was a dominant display. Well, I have it on good authority that they took that as a personal slight and that motivated the, the 12 pie <laughs> performance last night. So, um, yes, uh, well played in the round, I would say. <laughs> I would say generally, in, in terms of this game, I mean, look, I'm a bit of a grump when it comes to Mexican waves at sporting events anyway. It's particularly bad when you get them after about 18 minutes, which watching it on the TV, yeah. I think we saw that already, which perhaps is a reflection that at the start of the game, it wasn't exactly full on excitement. But from a, a Scotland point of view, it was job done, wasn't it? It was. And the, the object of the exercise was to, to you know, to get that win, the, the comprehensive win that they needed with five points to set up this last day shootout with Ireland, get out of there with no injuries, having taken a step on in performance terms from Tonga, which itself was a, a, a step up from uh, the South Africa game. Uh, and they did that useful game time for the wider squad. And as you said, Darcy Graham kind of uh, really seized, uh, seized his moment yet again. That's him now uh, up to joint second in the all-time Scotland scoring charts. He's now only three behind Stuart Hogg. So um, you would suspect that that record is going sooner rather than later and a, a big comeback performance from Hamish Watson as well who's kind of really slipped off the radar in the last 12 to 18 months uh, having been a you know a lion in the Six Nations play the championship two years ago he's really fallen into Rory Darge's um, shadow at open side but I think he's with that performance last night particularly his carrying in the first half which was just outstanding and that kind of barrel and pinball style of his uh, he's really put himself back in the conversation for, for that Ireland game next week so yeah I think it was just about as, uh, as good as it could have been against an exceptionally limited team We'll get onto the Ireland game in a moment that is the pick of the matches in the final round of, of pool fixtures but probably a few players to mention obviously Darcy Graham already he's a guy that does he go under the radar a little bit in terms of how good his try scoring record is in terms of amount of appearances made and off the back of that does he start versus Ireland do you think I saw some discussion of whether a Kyle Stain or someone like that would almost be better suited to the type of game they'll perhaps see against the Irish Absolutely, it's uh, you know he's on twenty four and thirty eight caps now, which is an outstanding record by by any stretch. Uh, but both Duhan van der Merwe and Kyle, I think Kyle Steen actually has the best strike rate of them all. Even though he is more considered to be a sort of all rounder wing rather than all out all out attack, he's um, you know he's the best defensive wing. His work rate is exceptional, both on and, and off his wing or from his wing rather. Uh, he's, he's excellent under the high ball. So there is definitely an argument. I actually thought he would he could start against the Springboks. Uh, albeit their kind of kick game is perhaps less than it has been, but I could definitely see an argument for um, for staying against the Irish as well. But I think you might then fall into the trap of you know picking a team that is designed. To, to counter what the opposition are going to do rather than trying to impose your own game and you know Gregor Townsend for, for right or wrong is very big on trying to do to concentrate on your on your own strengths uh, and when you've got Duhan van der Merwe and Darcy Graham there looking to exploit space then uh, you would perhaps be tempted to sling them both in again and you you know there would then be an argument for saying well is, is Darcy Graham better employed off the bench when the game opens up but the game doesn't really open up against Ireland ever in, in the last 20 minutes so I suspect they'll, they'll go with the two the two main men on the wings uh, this, this weekend what I love about Scotland, Mark, and, and I'm not I'm not making this about England, but I'm I'm with with England, and, and the, the conversation this week and next week will inevitably be around does Marcus Smith start at, at fullback, mm. and, and the debate there is well he he can do stuff in attack that 
that probably his his attacking package is like England haven't had anything like that at fullback for for as long as I can I can remember the the, the complete attacking package. But obviously he's not a Freddie Stewart under the high ball. He's not a Mike Brown defensively. It, the debate becomes what can you do in attack versus what can he do in defence. And what I like from from watching Scotland and and reading your stuff is that they. They're a team that that know who they are, and and they back them. They just they don't get themselves bogged down quite so much in in that sort of debate about what what the opposition might do and what you know what they can't do. They're a team that with a personality of well, this is who we are. This is how we're going to go and attack them, and let's go and let's go and give it a go. Definitely, I think that's you know significantly involved over the last twelve to eighteen months because there was a period kind of after you know the first maybe two years of this World Cup cycle, it all became a bit of a guddle in that um, it was kind of all out attack at the last World Cup. That didn't work; they got knocked out at the pool stage, and then it flipped one hundred and eighty degrees to being kind of a much more focused on defence when Steve Tandy came in and did a, an exceptional job. And I think they've they've now managed to strike that balance. You're still leaning more towards attack but it, it kind of suits the players within a team they're never going to you know they aren't a team that's going to physically dominate the best sides in the world so the, the way to win or the way that they feel they can win the biggest games is by moving teams around going to the width they're also picking their moments better to do that I think they're, they're not kind of you know albeit you know the necessary caveats for the opposition they've played in the last two weeks in, in Tonga and Romania but there's been a patience there which has previously been lacking that you know that they're not going to the width immediately and you know repetitively it's, it's actually picking the moment to do it so I think there's a there's a sort of control and maturity about the team now which kind of bodes well if not for this showdown next week then certainly for the the growth of the team over the next couple of years and so on to the Ireland game which we mentioned mouth-watering match I think was it the last eight that Ireland have won yeah. over Scotland where are you with, with this Mark do you think that or how likely do you think it is that that Scotland can pull off an upset and beat this Irish team who seems to have had their number in in recent years they absolutely have, and you know it's the one nut that that Gregor Times in Scotland haven't been able to crack. They've, they've had some big scalps, you know. They, they, they virtually own England now in that Calcutta Cup fixture. Hasten to add, Alex. Um, they've beaten Wales, they've beaten France, they've beaten Argentina, Australia, run New Zealand as close as any Scotland team has previously. But Ireland, with that kind of mix of the relentless physical side of the game, they just haven't been able to live with. There've been a couple of close contests, a couple of big defeats. Murrayfield this year was probably the prime example in the Six Nations. Scotland were ahead early with a Hugh Jones try, overplayed their hand a bit. Uh, Ireland had all sorts of problems. They lost four four forwards to injury. They had Josh van der Fleer chucking into the line out and yet still found a way to win quite comfortably in the end. I think their, their sort of resilience and able to fix problems on the run is still at a level that Scotland haven't proved they can match. So I would give Scotland probably, you know, certainly a puncher's chance, 20-25%. They certainly are capable of winning the game, whether they can win it by the eight points required to kind of deny Ireland that bonus point and climb above them on the table. I think that's uh, that would be my bigger concern, frankly. But, you know, they certainly are more than capable of winning the game. Um, it would be the, you know, comfortably the biggest result of the, the Townsend era and it will take a performance to match but I think they do have it in them Well I can't wait for it I think it's going to be brilliant i tell you what we'll do we'll just pause here because up next we'll look ahead to the rest of the final round of pool action what the quarterfinal picture and the permutations there are, are currently looking like so that all coming up next on The Ruck So the final round of pool fixtures. Let's start in Pool A. France top of the pool on 13 points. You then got New Zealand second, Italy third, both on 10 points. It basically comes down to that France-Italy game, you would imagine. That's on Friday at 8pm 
M. So I think I've got this right. If France lose, Italy are therefore likely to go through at their expense, but that would change if France were to pick up two bonus points and Italy don't get any. It's one of those where you're kind of maybe going to have to get your calculators and that sort of thing out a little bit. Alex, you were at the All Blacks Italy the other night. Was there anything from the Italians that suggests to you that they would be capable of, of pulling off that upset? How do you think that sort of that heavy defeat against New Zealand will, will, will impact them? They were broken. Mm. By 20 minutes, they were gone. I mean, they... They had to go early. They got the ball into Capuozzo's hands. They got to, they got to the edge once, turned the ball over. They tried a cross kick. I think it was Garbisi. It was after they conceded the first try that they tried a cross kick. It flew straight into touch. And really after that, they were floored by three tries in five minutes. So they actually they showed nothing for me in, in that game. And, and I mean, they will, they'll rally, but I, I can't see them threatening the French at all. And it was, I mentioned it in my match hall, but I've been listening to a, Whisper it, a rival podcast, which had which had um, Martin Johnson just reflecting on uh, on BBC on twenty two thousand and three. It starts really back in ninety five ninety nine, and he talked about playing the All Blacks in the semi final in ninety five, and how bleak a place it was to be on that field for over an hour, knowing that they weren't going to win that game. And it just came to me what you know that's what it looked like for Italy against the All Blacks, it was just a desolate place for them to be. They were they were up against a team that was ruthless and merciless and they had nothing. And how they regather themselves to then take on the hosts, I, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a huge ask. And, you know, I wouldn't have backed them to win the game anyway. I, I certainly wouldn't now. You know, there's this weird dynamic with Italy at the moment that they, um, you know, the, the progress that they've made in the last 18 months, two years under Kieran Crowley, they've, they've expanded their horizons uh, in terms of their attacking game. And, and when they get that going, as they showed in their couple of bonus point victories against the pool minnows, they, uh, you know, they, they are a much tougher uh, ask to deal with defensively these days. However, it seems to have been at to the detriment of um, some of the fundamentals look quite neglected. The things that you, you know, you would think that Italy had always used to pride themselves on step piece contact. It's just not there. Uh, and, and when those fundamentals are missing, they, you know, you don't have the building blocks to, to bring into that, that attacking game to bear. I think they're kind of, they've almost gone about it the wrong way around at the moment. Yeah. And, and, and- the, the what made Italy dangerous in the Six Nations was their speed of ball yeah. and pace, pace through the hands and getting it, getting it wide. That that was what they were dangerous because they could recycle the ball and, and catch you out defensively. The All Blacks just attacked them on the floor early. Yeah. You know, Bowden Barrett winning turnovers, and once the All Blacks had, had dominated that area, like you say, they, they then dominated the scrum and and the line out, and Italy just had. Had nowhere to go in the game, and I would just imagine France will will do the same. They'll they'll put that back row right up into, into Italy's face, get get them on the floor, and nullify nullify their biggest threat. What, what, what's been really peculiar about this tournament is that everyone's been really heartened by the performances of the smaller nations. I think everyone would agree with that. The likes of you know Portugal and, and Uruguay, how they performed, and yet actually there've been more drubbings than in, in previous tournaments because. <laughs> yeah. It used to be, uh, you know, hundred point wins as as Italy experienced against New Zealand in 1999 used to be fairly regular occurrences in the early years of the professional era. But in the last two tournaments, you, you didn't see teams even conceding more than 80. And yet in this tournament, we've had quite a few 80s. We've had two 96s. I don't think anyone expected Italy to be the one that came joint closest when you consider that Namibia, who are probably the weakest team in the tournament, were playing against France. They'd rested most of their key players and they had 14 men on the field for half an hour. And, mm. and even then, they, they, they could only concede 96. 
So, um, it, yeah, it was, it was astonishing that, that Italy were the ones that came so close. I think it's probably just a nature of what rugby is like these days, that some matches don't necessarily look completely one-sided or in, at least in the way that rugby matches used to look one-sided. And yet, when you just have these powerful teams that are just running in hard straight lines, the, the, the nations that will just drop off later on just, just can't deal with that. So it's just, it's just been quite peculiar that the, the results have been worse and yet it feels like the gap has, has narrowed at the same time. So Alex, we, we've got to let you go. The nature of this World Cup and everyone being all over the place means you've got media duties with England. We'll continue the uh, chat about the games coming up this weekend in just a moment with Elgin and with Mark. Uh, so before I let you go, God or Goddess of the Week for you? Devil of the Week, maybe? Where where are you going? Well, oh, I'm I, I'm going to leave the, the positivity to everyone else. Um, <laughs> I'm really exercised by what's happened with Jersey and that the failings of the club game, the failings of the RFU, and yeah, as as the main as the figurehead of English rugby leadership, I'm going to point towards Bill Sweeney as as a, a devil of the week. Um, it's not entirely his fault, clearly, as we'll discuss, but um, he runs the sport, and the sport is in a is in a hole. So it's him. Yeah, we're going to have more of a chat on Jersey coming up in the podcast. But for now, we'll, we'll let Alex go. And then in just a moment, myself, Mark and Elgin will get back to looking ahead to uh, the fixtures this coming weekend. Thanks, everyone. Now try and lift the mood again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to some of the other pools. I think we've probably covered off uh, Pool B in our chat about Scotland. Ireland against Scotland on Saturday, 8pm kickoff UK time is the the headline fixture there and the headline fixture across the weekend, really. Elgin, maybe just your thoughts on that as we didn't hear from you before. I mean, I know you're covering Wales and we'll get on to them in just a second any sort of envy that you have for mark that the side he's covering it's coming down to a blockbuster fixture on the final weekend or are you quite happy sitting pretty qualified as wales are i think that much like the wales players i quite enjoyed settling off for the the 13 days break knowing that uh, there was a bit less jeopardy going into the the wales georgia match and especially in in the the manner in which they, they dispatched Australia. We we talked about that in the bowels of the stadium afterwards. I think the feeling just among Welsh supporters that evening was of pure giddiness, and uh, it would have been quite a quite a nervy thirteen days in comparison. So while it's great for the tournament to have this lovely Ireland Scotland match where there's you know quite a lot of jeopardy at play for the, the world's number one ranked side, it's uh, it's certainly around the Wales camp much nicer knowing that uh, they've won three and they're sailing through to the quarterfinals and expecting to be full winners as well. Let me continue the theme of negativity that that Alex left us on. (laughs) Is there any sense of challenge perhaps in the way in which it's worked out for Wales in that they qualified, they have a week's break, they've then got a game which I would imagine they're probably possibly going to rotate for because they have already qualified. It's possibly quite a long break between that Australia game and the quarterfinal, or am I purely clutching at straws and there is no negativity here. Wales are in a, a great place. I think the overwhelming positivity was that Jack Morgan, the influential captain, could have a chance to rest because he played three games in successive weekends. He'd done a gym session on the morning of the second game because he wasn't expecting to play and was man of the match on that occasion. So certainly his his face after the Australia game needed some time to heal and I'm sure he enjoyed some time off his time off his uh, off his legs I think when you look back at Wales's recent world cups when they've got to semi-finals injuries have played such a big part to key players and obviously injuries will always play a key part in international rugby and at world cups Wales thus far have been 
quite fortunate in they've had almost 33 players available at all times. But Dan Bigger is the current injury concern. He he went off very early on against Australia with, with a slight pectoral injury. But again, he's expected to be out for two weeks. So he could even be available for the Georgia game. But I'd be surprised if they bothered picking Dan for that match just because it was one of the senior players. He's the type of player that, you know, will will benefit from that rest and he'll be able to go into a quarterfinal straight away without without worrying about that. So I think it I think it probably has worked out quite nicely that all the, the players were able to go away, spend some time with their families, knowing that they had got through, but they still have the challenge of making sure that they win the pool. And also for some players there will still be some memories of the defeat by Georgia, thirteen twelve last November, which was the writing on the wall for the, the Wayne Pivak era and then the subsequent defeat by Australia that, that brought back Warren Gatlin. So I still think there's there's plenty of motivation for the probably mix and match 15 that we'll see in that match in, in Nantes next weekend. How much does that Georgia game rankle with the players? I was there in Cardiff that day. Is it a case of they always kind of bat away the suggestion that they're out for revenge or have you got the sense that actually putting that result to bed is a motivating factor? I don't think it's a, a huge motivating factor necessarily because I think if Wayne Pivak were, were still the head coach, maybe maybe more so, but on that day, you know, Warren Gatland wasn't the head coach. He, he's come in to, uh, to, to firefight the, the situation and thus far at the World Cup anyway, doing quite a good job about it. There's also quite a different team. I, I haven't checked the match day 23 from the Georgia game, but I know that from the Australia game the following weekend, the 13 of that 23 were in the World Cup squad, not even just in the team, in, in the 33-man squad. So there has been a fairly significant alteration in, in the players that are taking part. Certainly, they're not saying that they're out for revenge, that you know, revenge is very much secondary, maybe not even secondary or tertiary to the simple nature of Taking one game as it as, as it comes, as the as the cliche goes, and they like they like parroting. For them, it's just about winning the next game, making it forty four, and then going into a quarterfinal, hopefully as pool winners. So let's finish off then with Pool D, England top of the pool, playing Samoa on Saturday. The interest here is Argentina against Japan, who are locked on points at the moment. A winner takes all game. Mark, I suppose that in itself will will make it entertaining. But neither side has looked that great, have they, this World Cup? No, and you just feel, you know, particularly with Argentina, with a great tournament coach like, like Michael Checa there, that they do, they surely have one big performance in them. And I think it could come here. You know, this is a side that won at Twickenham, that beat um, uh, New Zealand very recently. They have got more, much more than they've shown so far. An excellent goal kicker in Buffelli. I think they will have just about, uh, just just a little too much for Japan in this one. Albeit, you know, they'll be looking to sign off the, the Jamie Joseph era in style as well. So I suspect it'll be a very, very tight one with, with, with Argentina just edging it. Do we think Samoa will look back on, on this World Cup and this pool a, a little bit disappointed, a little bit of regret? Their defeat at the weekend confirmed that they won't be taking part in a quarterfinal, although it looked like a tall order before that anyway. There hasn't been a huge amount of difference really between Samoa, Japan and Argentina. It was all much for muchness. And, and yes, of course, Samoa will be annoyed that you know they lost by nine points to Argentina in quite a, quite a drab encounter. They it was six shy of, of Japan. So they've all been close games. So we are anticipating that Japan-Argentina, again, might be quite a close fixture. It's, it's such a shame with the Japan side, especially compared with four years ago. I think you know, it's been written about that the pandemic really, really 
hindered their growth just as they were coming out of hosting that World Cup and, and reaching the quarterfinals, beating Ireland and Scotland in their pool. It's that when they're playing, they're still playing with that same invention and enterprise that, that we that we know they have from, from the previous World Cup. But that brilliant accuracy is just is just departed them, sadly. So, you know, they, they were error-strewn against England, but they tried some lovely rugby. It's just, they almost never made any mistakes at 2019. Yeah. Just everything was yeah. so brilliantly choreographed and trained and, and lovely. And they're still trying to do that, but they just, they just don't have that there anymore. So, I mean, e- either way you look at it, for me, I think it would be great if, if Japan did beat Argentina just so that Japan could get to another quarterfinal and hopefully that would sort of stem the, the, the lost momentum that they've had over the past four years. Equally, you know, Argentina are a great rugby nation and, and you wouldn't want them to, you know, you'd never wish ill upon them either. But with thinking about sort of the game's interest of hearts in Japan, it, it would be great if they could come out on top, but I, I suspect it will be Argentina. So just round it off then, boys, in terms of the final pool games, are we pretty happy with, with where we've reached? We spoke earlier in the podcast about the kind of strange nature of the schedule at this World Cup, but you look at most of the pools and there's qualification up for grabs. There's still some games that have an element of, of jeopardy on. Are you are you content with with where we are heading into the final weekend or do you wish that the, the schedule was maybe slightly different and it was a bit more exciting? Well, I mean, I'll have to have the traditional Scottish moan about the draw and um, the fact there that I think that, 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 that the, the <laughs> tournament has been hamstrung by that from this because it has been just frightfully a lot sided right from day one uh, and you know the, the the nature of the teams that are ultimately going to be in the semi-finals and, and those who won't be it will probably bear that out but um, as you say though you know by hook or by crook we've, with this very imperfect format we've, we have ended up with a, an end game of uh, you know meaningful matches and, and still an element of jeopardy going into the final weekend so yeah, I think I think it's just coming to the boil nicely. I think that you know it'll really go up a couple of notches, probably with this Ireland Scotland game and into the knockouts. I mean, it effectively is a knockout match in itself. So I think that's where it really will catch fire. Okay, well, looking forward to it this weekend. Next up, though, we're going to turn our attention away from the World Cup and back to the troubled domestic game in England because last week Jersey Reds became the latest club to cease trading, plunging all their staff, their coaches, their players into uncertainty about what the future would hold. So earlier on, I caught up with Alex to just get the latest on that situation. The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get their team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus drinkaware.co.uk. The Ruck Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Funding Circle and Saracens, British and Irish Lions and England hooker Jamie George is with me to explain how Funding Circle are supporting small and medium-sized UK businesses because Jamie, you, as well as being a rugby player, are also a small business owner. Yeah, I own a business with uh, a good school friend of mine, Reese Carter. It's called Carter and George. We're a physiotherapy business. Uh, we've been up and running for about six years now. 
and sort of our strap line is delivering the same level of care I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. If you're looking to improve different parts of your business or hire talent with extra know-how, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Jamie, you want to do the sign-off for us? Absolutely. Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how I'm growing my business backed by Funding Circle. So Alex, we're all in the middle of a World Cup that we're massively enjoying. We perhaps thought that we had put some of the terrible headlines we saw last year, particularly in the English domestic game, behind us. And then last week, headlines about Jersey. To most of us, it seemed like it came out of nowhere. They ceased trading. What's the latest that that you can tell us from... The whole story involving Jersey Reds and, and their participation or non-participation now in the championship next year. Yeah, it is. It's brutal news at a time when when the sport of rugby should be showcasing the best of itself, and particularly brutal, like you say, for the staff and the players who only discovered that they were going to be out of work at a at a seven thirty a.m. meeting, having thought that that everything was fine, having thought they were part of a club that had just won the championship only five months ago, and it was clearly due to be part, a key part of this new uh, relaunched professional rugby structure in England, which we've heard so much about from Premiership Rugby and the RFU, this this plan for you know a Premiership 1, Premiership 2, um, a whole new model for the professional game in England. And my understanding is that is that Jersey had plans in conjunction with the Jersey government for a stadium to be built and, and the rugby team were, were due to be almost a magnet for tourism. You, you can imagine... I know Leicester Tigers playing a, a game over there or the number of fans who they would want to attract to Jersey and they're going to use a stadium for big events and music and make every home game an event. And that was the sort of the vision that um, the players and, and, and the management thought they were part of. Then they receive a text message at I think about half five in the morning. They turn up for a meeting at half seven in the morning to be told the club has ceased trading. Obviously the fourth professional club in England within 12 months for to go through that pain. What happened is unclear to a degree. Um, what is predictable and, and sad and, and disappointing is that there's a lot of finger pointing from people who should be taking a lead. The RFU issued a statement which blamed investors pulling out of Jersey and which my understanding is that that statement from the RFU has gone down very badly within the game. Jersey had received a couple of grants from the Jersey government and it now appears that the Jersey government had turned down a request for a third grant so there's clearly some responsibility there on on Jersey for overstretching themselves which is a problem that we've seen time and again in professional rugby. What is unclear and where I, I still at the moment retain some sympathy for the club they were preparing themselves to be part of this new vision this new structure of professional rugby in England <clears throat> like I said this this plan for a stadium. The new Prem 1, Prem 2, the idea is it would generate some new revenue streams for the championship, broadcasting deal. There's lots of hope that it could be what's required to, to give some solidity and, and not prosperity would be the wrong word, but a, but a more solid, predictable future for the club game in England. So Jersey, as far as I, I can see, were preparing to be part of that, where the club and the championship are incredibly disappointed and frustrated with the RFU is that while they had their funding amount known for this coming season, they had no clarity as to what the future actually looked like. What would the promotion and relegation scenario be between Prem 1 and Prem 2? 
what would the funding streams be? What would the broadcast deal look like? And my understanding from talking to people in the championship is that they feel locked out of those conversations. So it's all well and good, Conor O'Shea and the RFU saying it's all the investors' fault. It's not the RFU's fault because the club knew what their funding was for the next 12 months. But that's irrelevant because no one, no government, no business is going to invest in something which has a business plan for 12 months and not beyond. And I think for the RFU to just point the fingers everywhere else and not acknowledge that they could have done more and should have done more, I think is really poor leadership from from Twickenham. And I know it's not gone down well with people inside the game. And it's yet another example of of the RFU, sadly, not, not taking a grip on situations where they needed to. It seems to me as well, Alex, that these situations, it becomes so hard to know what's right and what isn't. Because as you say, you have the club saying one thing and you, you have the RFU saying another. And us on the outside don't really know what is true or not. Just how much frustration do you find, I certainly do, of for us and for everyone, for the public, not being able to know what the actual truth is here? Yeah, there's a lot of passing the buck. And I think some detail will emerge. But for example, the RFU have blamed the investors for pulling out. The Jersey government say they weren't an investor. They say that they were actually, they were approached by the club and declined to provide a third grant. So already you've got, you've got the RFU saying one thing, you have the championship saying another thing, and now you have the Jersey government saying a third thing. Everyone is blaming everybody else, which in any scenario is in my book, poor leadership. And for Bill Sweeney and Conor O'Shea and the RFU to hide behind poorly worded press releases instead of outlining a vision for where this game is, is going to go, I think is, is incredibly poor. And as you say, Alfie, a lack of clarity about all of this. And you've got to remember, you know, this is this is a sport that we all enjoy, but the players and the staff at Jersey Reds, just as the just as they experienced at Worcester and Wasps and London Irish, they've had the rug pulled from underneath them. And actually at those clubs, there was at least some build-up to it. They sort of sensed what was coming. At Jersey, those guys had no idea... And their lives have been turned upside down. You've got players trying to f- scrape together enough money to pay the rent, to keep the bailiffs out, to keep the landlord away, to find a contract somewhere else. That's just not good enough for mm. a professional sport and for a union that, you know, the RFU run the championship. The Jersey are the champions of the RFU's top competition. And talking about clarity and communication, a very different issue, but it reminds me to a degree of the tackle height issue in the community game where a kind of cack-handed statement was put out there. It caused more issues than it solved. And this is a similar situation where the RFU seem to have shot themselves in the foot. Massively. And, and there is a lot of rancour within the RFU about the, the communication and the transparency from the union. And we saw 30 of the 65 RFU council members submitted a letter challenging the leadership of the RFU of Bill Sweeney and Tommy Lube became the centre of a fiery meeting on Thursday night and then the council meeting on Friday at which that letter was withdrawn but only with uh, a lot of um, pressure being placed on the RFU to improve transparency and communication and to improve the governance and leadership of the of the sport in this country. It was a warning shot, as far as I can see, across the bowels of the executive board that, that the way things are going is not good enough. Listeners won't care how often journalists get to speak to Bill Sweeney, but it's our job to ask questions and scrutinise the RFU. Bill Sweeney refuses 
to speak to the media, and he has done so since the day Steve Borthwick got got the England job. He won't answer any questions. They hide behind statements, poorly worded statements that get emailed out, and it's not good enough. And as you say, the statement pointing fingers at, at people over Jersey has upset a lot of people within the game. The, the community game was on fire after that tackle height statement came out because it was incorrect. I mean, it's staggering to think it, that the RFU issued a, a diktat to the game that, that the tackle height will be lowered to the waist, which understandably caused an eruption of anger around the game. But it wasn't correct. The, the RFU council had only voted to reduce the tackle height based on the scientific evidence they'd been given. They did not vote for it to go down to the waist. You know, we now see it at the at the sternum. They could have brought the game with them, but instead they infuriated everyone with an amateur. It's not even amateur. It's just it's just really really poor levels of communication to to announce something that's incorrect. So, just one final question on this, Alex. It's probably worth us all remembering as well that through COVID, the slash to the funding that the RFU sent to the Championship clubs. As well, and I'd imagine that's something that has played an impact here. Yeah, in fact, it was it was before then in 2020, I think it was. Um, the RFU decided to cut in half the funding that was going to be sent to the championship. The conclusion was that the championship had failed to meet um, targets that were set for them uh, after the 2015 World Cup. The championship claimed afterwards they had no idea about those targets. Essentially, the RFU had decided that the gap between the championship and the premiership had become too big and it was unbridgeable and therefore they weren't getting a good enough return on investment. So they they cut the, the funding in half. They then cut it again during COVID. So the, the funding that, that the clubs get is somewhere around 100 grand and it is, it is minimal. Now, now, the RFU have had to do something of a u-turn on their view of the championship i think they've seen they've seen what is possible in france now that the the rugby landscape is so different in france and, and the, the popularity of the sport in the south and and how it becomes town versus town but the the pro d2 in in france is incredibly is a thriving league and it, but it's part of the funding and, and the and the television deal that that the top 14 has so the RFU has had has had to do somewhat of a u-turn because of this idea of creating a, a two-tier pro competition in England but you talk to anyone in the championship and they feel completely locked out and disenfranchised from the RFU they will tell you that all these talks about this new future have uh, not involved them anywhere close to the degree that they believe they should be involved partly because the main professional rugby deal is being done between the RFU and premiership rugby and the championship kind of will form part of it but as we've seen with Jersey, they need to know what the future looks like so that they can invest. And they've, and they've already been dealing with um, reduced uh, central funding, as, as you say, for a few years now. And it went down again during COVID. They need to know what the future looks like. And, and I can understand why people would be reluctant to invest in a club, in a, a league, in the championship that has so little financial backing from its own governing body. And it all comes back to what, what I was just ranting about before. Vision. Where's the sport going in this country, and where do the RFU believe it should should be going, and and what is their plan for getting it there? Let's move on to God or Goddess, or possibly Devil of the Week, Mark and Elgin. It was good to chat to Alex about the situation involving Jersey. Any updates there? Obviously, will be covered in the Times and the Sunday Times, and here 
on the ruck as well. Uh, who wants to start? Mark, do you want to to uh, go first? God or goddess? I suppose you're, you're probably sticking in the Scotland camp, aren't you, after that massive victory I'm, over Romania? I'm going to stick to my parochial self um, and go with young Darcy Graham, who, uh, as we, we mentioned earlier in the programme, is a fantastic game. Is is really in the form of his life. He, he had been scoring tries for fun before he uh, picked up a knee injury, I think, last December that kept him out of the Six Nations. But having come back at the tail end of the season with Edinburgh, he's just picked up exactly where he's left off. And going from strength to strength is now, you know, comfortably one of the one of the best wings in the world. So, uh, and also uh, a, a, an absolute pleasure to deal with from our perspective as well, which always earns these guys extra brownie points. So, so my God of the Week is Darcy Graham. Oh, it always helps. Also helps as well for those of us that had him as triple captain in our fantasy teams <laughs> this weekend. And that, that, that was one, the main reason that I was celebrating every single one of his tries. Uh, Elgin, where are you going for God or Goddess? I'm going for the Georgia fullback, although he was on the wing against Fiji, David Niniashvili. He's, there, was, there was a moment during the Georgia-Fiji game where he and, and Joshua Tuasova uh, shared a moment there, their former teammates at Leon, and you couldn't get two differently proportioned backs in world rugby than Joshua Tuasova and Daddy Niniashvili. Niniashvili, very wiry Tuasova, you know, perhaps the biggest back in world rugby, just they, they don't call him the bus for nothing. But Ninias really has shown that there is still room out there for, for the wiry, slippery runner. He was in, in a defeat against Australia. He, he looked really exciting at fullback. You had this situation where Australia had the dominant pack and Georgia had the best back on the field, which is quite a <laughs> topsy-turvy way that you expect with Australia v Georgia. And then against Fiji, obviously, Georgia couldn't quite win. They came at five points short. But on that occasion, he showed that he's got a rather hefty boot on him as well as he as he smacked a, a penalty over from around the halfway line. On the whole as well, just sort of pullbacks from from the smaller nations have been great. Portugal's Nuno Susha Guedes has been superb for them and Uruguay's Baltazar Amaya as well. They they've both been Two of the players that you maybe didn't know of before the tournament, but have really excited viewers. Yeah, two good nominations. I'm going to go a little bit more obvious, but it's Sam Whitelock, the New Zealand second row, surpassing Richie McCaw's long-standing record for the most capped all-black, the history of that jersey, the brilliant players that have come through those teams over the years. That's an outstanding achievement for him, and no doubt he's going to look to add to that tally at this World Cup. How many more he gets, we'll wait and see. We'll see quite what New Zealand do, if and when when they get themselves to a quarterfinal. Uh, Gents, thanks for joining me this week on The Ruck. Just a flag to the listeners as well. The latest episode of Will Kelleher's mini-series of How to Win the World Cup will be out on Thursday. Once again, this week is a good episode. Well, they're all good episodes. This one in particular, though. Comrade Smith for 2011 and 2015, part of the All Blacks team that went back-to-back, the only team to this point to have done that. That'll be out on Thursday. Uh, Mark, I will see you in the press room at the Stade de France on Saturday. Looking forward to it? Absolutely. We'll see you there. I'll be hunting you down probably to try and get some reaction in the early hours of the morning as well. So just to tee you up for that. (laughs) It will be a pleasure. Uh, And Elgin, where where are you off to over this coming week? I'll be heading to Nantes on Thursday, the, the scene of Wales' infamous defeat by Fiji 16 years ago that initiated the first Warren Gatland era. But this time they'll be going there knowing that there's, there's no danger of missing out in the quarterfinals for that Georgia game on Saturday afternoon. Uh, good stuff. Going to be another good week of action. We'll be back next week on The Ruck. Make sure you follow or subscribe from wherever you get your podcast from and also leave us a review. We'll see you next week.
Thanks for listening to the Ruck podcast. We're delighted to be teaming up with Funding Circle and Funding Circle ambassador Jamie George is with me. All right, Jamie. Hello. Hello. How are you? All good. Good, good. So away from Saracens and England duty, you are a business owner and Funding Circle is a huge supporter of small and medium sized UK businesses. How have they helped you? Yeah, so uh, I've got a business with a friend of mine. It's a physiotherapy business, effectively delivering the same level of care I get as a professional sportsman to the general public. And we've been looking to expand and grow the business as quickly as we can. And with the financial products that Funding Circle have done, we wouldn't have been able to do it without them. So Funding Circle has been supporting small businesses with access to the finance they need to grow since 2010. And they know that like rugby, running a business takes hard work, drive and a good team supporting you. If you want to invest in your business and take your team to the next level, Funding Circle provides finance that backs you and your business to succeed. Visit FundingCircle.com to find out how Jamie is growing his business backed by Funding Circle. Jamie, can you do the honours? Funding Circle, business finance that backs you. The biggest rugby tournament of the year is coming to a Green King pub near you. Watch all the unmissable action live as Europe's top six battle it out for glory in the Six Nations tournament. In and out, in and out, for the line! Leave your rivalries at the door and get their team together to watch the Six Nations. Feel the excitement and the buzz of coming together to enjoy matchday food and drink at your nearest Green King sports pub. Scores in the corner! The Six Nations and Green King. 18 plus, drinkaware.co.uk. 